0: It is at the appointed time, so uh, uh, without further ado, we'll get started. Father, we just thank you so much for all the ways you have blessed our church and how you continue to bless us. Uh, um, and we just especially thank you this morning for Patty and for uh, how she has been uh, leading this series. And we just pray that you would be with her and us as we uh, attempt to understand more of what it means to uh, to age and how we should do that uh, in light of the gospel. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
1: How would I know what it's like to age?
0: I do hope I never grow up.
1: Yeah. Don't worry. I don't think you will. My wife says not much chance of it. Yeah. Uh, I brought with me today not only, well, David, who's here all the time, but my oldest daughter, Lisa, who's in the back, and my friend Judy and uh, so that means I have three people to embarrass. <laughs> so I told David about how I brought his name up at every chance last week. I went ahead and confessed. Um, this morning, we're going I'm introducing a topic which is considered the most uh, 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 taboo topic in America today. What do you think it is? Absolutely. It's not sex. We, get, we see that everywhere all the time on TV. It's not violence. We get a lot of that on television. It's death. We are not allowed to think about it, talk about it. Um, I, tried, I tried it out this past couple of weeks on my colleagues at work because, well, you got to remember now, I'm working in, with psychiatrists. Most of my friends are psychiatrists. So I would just walk up to one randomly and say, you know, I've been thinking a lot lately about death. First thing I get is, are you depressed? (laughs) (laughs) Because, see, if I say yes, then they'll probably want to know if I'm suicidal. Then they'll put me in the hospital. So, no, I'm not depressed. Well, then why are you thinking about death? Well, because I'm 78. Yeah, but you're going to live forever, Patty. And they walk away from me. I got this m- more times than I can tell you. Um, it's very difficult to talk to your family about dying. My family's used to it now because I've introduced it slowly over the years. Uh, every now and then I'll bring it up about, you know, what I want and, and uh, about how I want my remains to be disposed of and stuff like that. So my family always reacts to things that, with humor, which I like. So that that 's just something we do in our family, but um, one thing i 've noticed about about uh, death with almost everybody is they do not want to talk about it, let alone face it and Essen gave me a wonderful opportunity to start this portion of this by last week when he got up in the pulpit and said, "Some of you out there are very close to death now." Of course he doesn't know exactly who and then he said some of us are closer than we think so we really don't know when it's going to happen and when you're very young like Ben here you don't think about it at all I never thought about dying I never even thought about it. I never. I never gave it a second thought it wasn't anything at all that I, that I considered um, and I brought some interesting things here uh, to talk to you about one was my from my little book here, Successful Aging. This is interesting. If I can get to it. Well, here we go again. Okay. All right, I gotta find a way to do this. Okay. Thank you. Aren't you sweet? This is what my family goes through all the time with me. Bear with me. I'm getting there. David's used to this. That's why he has the eight-second rule for me getting out of his truck, and that's because I get my glasses tangled up in the seatbelt all the time. (laughs) Uh, It seems wonderfully, oh, do not fear death so much, but rather the inadequate life is what that starts out with. It seems wonderfully ironic, but the most successful agers don't give a hoot about aging or death. They don't count every new wrinkle or gray hair, and they certainly don't fret about each approaching birthday. They enjoy the present, and just as important, they look forward to the future. This is no small feat in a culture that worships youth and engages in collective headstands and handstands to avoid any thought of mortality. Paradoxically, the people who have acknowledged and accepted their own mortality are the ones who live life to the fullest day in and day out. Fortunately, accepting your own mortality does not mean living in constant dread of it. As one woman explained, we couldn't wait to move to Florida and join a senior care community, but now we're having second thoughts. People sit around griping about growing old, and a major form of entertainment is checking out the obituary column every day. It's like living in heaven's waiting room, only it's beginning to feel like hell. Many retirement communities are far more active and pleasant, but the scenario she describes is not a rare one. Over the centuries, numerous philosophers have observed that people create or attract the very things they dread. The best way to ensure a miserable old age and unhappy death is to worry about it on a regular basis. So do I worry about it? No, I can't tell you actually that I worry about it. Do I think about it? Sure. I do think about it, and and I think about it more because I am older, but I don't sit around and think, oh, it's going to happen any day now. I don't know when it's going to happen, so I'll just wait it out. Um, And I'm sure that some of you all think about it. Um, I don't know how much experience we have with death in this country now. You know what we've done is is we've sanitized it and made it almost impossible to face death by what we do with dying people. We put them places where they won't bother us. Uh, now, I will tell you this I've worked with, with doctors who, young, with residents who tell me that they, they do a, what they call rotations in various services around the hospital. One of them is palliative care. They love palliative care, even though it's very sad, because they get to comfort families and people who are dying, and they get a whole new look at what it's like because they're getting the experience even more than the families. They're taking care of the dying people. My grandmother uh, told me that, well, my grandmother had a whole different look at, at death because back in my grandmother's day, people died at home. There was no place to go to die. So they died at home, and she told me that in the Great Flu epidemic, I think it was 1917. I'm not really sure about the date there. Half their town died, half. And she said, and I helped lay out the bodies, meaning she bathed the, she took, she prepared the bodies for burial, and that's how they did it then. So my grandmother was not exactly upset about death. She understood that it was a natural, this is my maternal grandmother, she understood that it was a natural part of life. Um, I was telling my um, children, David and Lisa, last night we got into talking about a lot of memories, and I was saying it must have been very tough for my grandmother when she watched her only son, my uncle, go off to World War II. I remember her taking him to the train station, he was a little kid and coming back, and she never, ever complained about anything. She never acted as if she was upset. He was flying missions, and he was a waste gunner on a B-24, and uh, he, was, he had to fly 50 missions before he could come home, and planes blew up all around him, his friends, and um, he came back a changed person. I don't think he ever really recovered from the war experiences, but she just waited, and patiently, and read her Bible, and actually was not a worrier about anything. I will tell you this. When she was getting ready to die, she had uh, pancreatic and liver cancer, and she was in the hospital, and um, I went up to see her. I was living in Morgantown at the time, teaching at West Virginia University, and I went home, and I went up to see her in the hospital, and she was she didn't have much longer to go, and I knew that. And so I, I, I had set her up in a chair. She wanted to set up in a chair, so I helped her and set her up in a chair. And she said, Honey, I have a question I need to ask you. This is uh, very emotional for me. And I said, "Well, What is it, Granny? And she said, Am I going to die? She said, Nobody will tell me. And I said, Yes, you are. And she said, well, then I have another question to ask you because I know you'll tell me the truth. And I said, what is it? She said, do you think God is angry with me? I couldn't believe it. I said, why would God be angry with you? She said, well, I haven't been able to go to church lately. Now, let me tell you, I my grandmother and I went to church at least four times every week. All the time I was growing up, I went with her. I went with her to circle meetings, to prayer meetings, to evening services, to whatever she wanted to go to. And uh, she was the most devout person. And she taught me so much about the Bible and about living. And I said, oh, of course he's not angry with you. I know he's not angry with you. And I said, not only that, you know that I'm going to be with you again. This isn't the end. This is just the beginning. And you don't have to be afraid and and I'll see you forever someday for eternity. And I had to go back to Morgantown, and that evening I got a phone call, and it was from her family doctor, our family doctor. And he said, Patty, did you tell your grandmother that she was going to die? And I said, yes. And he said, I thought so. He said, they told me you'd been in to see her, and she lapsed into a coma right after you left. She gave up. Which is what was right. She died. She lived only a few days after that. And then she peacefully died. So uh, she was waiting for someone to give her permission. She was waiting for someone to talk to her and tell her the truth, which I did. So we don't always do that. So, what I guess I'm wanting to ask you all is if you would be willing to tell me about experiences that you've had with dying and uh, with people dying. And if you're afraid, and if you are, and don't be afraid to say you're afraid of death, I think if we stop and think about it, all of us get a little bit nervous. about it. So We don't exactly know what it's going to be like. Uh, we can talk about it. We've got all the promises that God has given us uh, about what's going to happen to us, but that we've never done it. I've never done died before i don't know exactly what that's going to be like and so like i said i think if you're if you're mentally healthy you probably don't sit around and dwell on it a lot but then i haven't really been face to face with it so does anybody want to ask questions or make any comments up to this point
2: i'll make a comment um back in 2001 i um had a, an ulcer. I didn't know I had an ulcer, and uh, but I, I passed out. I was in a meeting with some colleagues at work. I ended up in the hospital, and uh, they didn't know what was going on, and all my family was out traveling, and um, so I was there by myself in the emergency room, and they were bringing in these forms, uh, do not resuscitate forms, explaining to me what they meant. So I'm signing all these forms, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not someone who really thought about death very much, and um, it's a... Uh, pretty awful feeling to to uh start thinking about it but now looking at it uh since i've been saved and looking at it from a biblical standpoint i think um death is a it's a penalty it's a penalty for sin and i don't think we're ever going to be able to make it look very attractive um it's not attractive at all it's it's um it's not a it's not a very nice thing to contemplate but but god did give us um his people of course in his grace and mercy he gave us the promise of eternal life but we're going to have to taste death first Um, so I'm not sure how how much we can make this very appealing uh, in this life
3: thanks
4: Dave Um, we can't make it appealing It, it it is the result of sin um but I think the biggest problem with our culture in this is that we don't, we don't look at it. So many people look at it, oh, that's the end, boom, it's over. But it's not. Um, one of my greatest comforts in life is that, um, up until I was going to college, my dad was not saved. He he had lived in a Christian family all his life, and just had never dealt with it personally. Um, when I was in my first year of college. He, he dealt with it personally. He became a Christian. He, he gave his life to Christ, and it changed everything about him. When my sisters cried because he would hold their hand. He hadn't held their hands. They were little girls. And I know that when this life is over, even though I'm going to miss him greatly, he's going to be there to meet me.
5: Um, when I was um, a number of years ago, when my mother was still alive, she wanted to talk about death, um, what she wanted, and I avoided it. Mother, we don't have to talk about that. We don't, I don't want to talk about that because mm-hmm. we don't see our parents or our close relatives getting old, and I think it scares us. It does. And I wish I had had those conversations. Um, my mother did live to the age of 90. What has changed for me, especially in this past year, I've lost three people um, who who died at a very young age. Um, Last year, my ex-husband died, and he was 63. This year, a former boss who I really love died at 62. And a couple weeks ago, when I was in Guatemala, my sister died, and she was 61. I'm not afraid of death. I pray I have my mother's genes and can live a long life. There's too many things I want to do. But I've started living my life differently now and making the most of each moment. And when an opportunity arises, especially with my children and my extended family and my friends, I seize those opportunities and I don't say, I'll do it later. You know, I don't have the money now. I can't do it. I'm not being frivolous by any means. But I'm I'm making the most of each moment because I don't know, and you know, to lose people who are young, you oh, know, that that sort of just has really um, caused me to ponder.
1: Thank you. That's quite true. If you have deaths close to you of, of younger people, and that's young nowadays. They,
3: We had quite an experience when my mother was dying. We were sitting with her for uh, a week, and we knew knew that she was dying, and she was mostly out of it. She had been out of it as far as who we were for a couple of years, I guess, that she had not known us at all. We were just some people who came to see her. And as we stood by her bed the day before she died, she opened her eyes and said, my girl's And she knew me and my sister, and then she also knew Harry, and she spoke to him. And it just brought home to me how God is right there when we're dying Mm too. and he gave us something special, and he gave her something special, that we were able to know each other and know that, that God was with us, and that was very special thank you,
6: hey, was I'm a yeah. you. Yeah. I wasn't sure I could share without getting emotional so I'm glad Becky did I want to try <laughs> um, in '04, we were having a yard sale here and it turned out that I pulled a muscle in my chest around my heart but I thought I was having a heart attack and most of us think we don't know how we'll react when we're dying But I do know because I thought I was going to die that day. And I just want to encourage everybody to make amends because everyone that I had ever hurt, those memories came back to me that day. And I apologize to those people. And then I died that day. I would never have had that chance to apologize. And so I think that's one reason that I say what's on my mind is because I want people to know how I feel about them. I want them to know that I love them. And I may hurt you every now and then, but I don't do it on purpose. And I just want to encourage everybody that if there's someone in your life that you've never said, I'm sorry, do it. While you can.
1: Thank
0: you. I want to change gears just a little bit. Um, Having been to quite a few funerals, they fall into two camps. There are those where the person who died, yeah, whoever's preaching the funeral doesn't know you know, that, that person's heart, and you, know, there's, yeah, you, you sort of suspect that maybe that person wasn't a believer. Uh, and, and that funeral's a sad and dreary event, and there's no hope. But then there's the funeral of someone who was strong in their faith, who really believed the gospel and it showed in their life, and the service is preached by someone who knows that, uh, and who knows to delight in that? And the difference in the two is so so vivid, uh, the one, yeah, even even though there's sorrow in it, it's still mainly a celebration. And the other one talks of celebration, but there's really none there. So I just think that uh, yeah, that we you know, who are strong in Christ, should not fear death everyone has a fear of the unknown we don't know what the process will be we hope the Catholics are wrong and there's no purgatory because we really wouldn't want to do that uh, you know we we don't know what what it's going to be like uh, so there's always an apprehension of the unknown but uh, if we're strong in our faith there's always a uh, there's always an underlying joy that we have knowing that we're going to be with Christ and uh, I just Have been so blessed by those services I've been to where that has been uh, expressed well and the marked difference where it's not.
1: Thank you, Frank.
7: I'm hopefully not like the people you read about in the nursing home that all my entertainment is from their obituaries. (laughs) But, But I have found over the years that I tend to look at them more and more and I go through them and it's almost like I'm voting. You know, this one's old enough to die, okay. This one's too young to die. No, that's not right. You know, and I just look at it. When my 17-year-old stepson died, I knew that was wrong and my 45-year-old twin sister. The good thing is I guess for all of you is I've reached Medicare age myself that that number where it's okay keeps on getting higher. (laughs) And (laughs) And, and in fact, I begin to understand the things you sometimes see in a movie where a 90-year-old guy passes away and somebody says, what a shame, he was a young man in the bloom of life. You know? The thing is, last, last night, uh, Bill and Ann and I were at a funeral for a 46-year-old, just a wonderful, wonderful person. And you know, I can't get past thinking, that's wrong. That's not supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. And I guess the thing we need faith for is to realize it's not our decision ever. You know, we don't get to vote.
1: That's exactly right.
8: My name is Tanya Andrews, and I am Janelle's friend. Many people in this church prayed for my family. Um, On November 13, 2010, my family was driving my daughter to the doctor, and a driver crossed the yellow line and hit our family head on and killed my husband instantly. We had been married for 16 years. And we had a lovely life. He was a very godly man and a wonderful father. I have two beautiful, um, amazing children. And that day, um, I knew for certain, and in the months that followed, there was a ripping and a rendering of my soul like nothing I had ever experienced. But in the midst of it, I believed firmly in the sovereignty of God, that there was not one accident with God. He knew that on that appointed day that there would be a collision and my husband would be ushered Into heaven, the place he most longed to be. And I have had to learn in the months that followed that God is so faithful to meet us at every point, even when you think you can't lift your head another day. Through his people, but primarily through his word. I believe firmly that his word is true, it is beautiful, and it is lovely, and it can sustain us through every trial we face. And I believe that God is more real to me today than he ever has been. And I would encourage folks who know someone who has lost someone they love to let them talk about them. I have experienced that death makes people very uncomfortable, particularly when someone is young. My husband was only 40, and their eyes start to glaze over and they get very distant from you. And so you just stop talking about it and you find those people who are safe refuge, like my friend Janelle. And so please let people talk about their loved ones. And my encouragement is death is going to come. You may not lived to be old i could have died that day just as well as my husband um so i would encourage if if you don't have a relationship with christ that is preeminently the most important thing that must be taken care of but fortify your soul in times of ease so that you can stand when the storm comes because it will
1: Thank you. Lovely testimony, and thank you. We certainly will pray.
2: Yeah, that was a powerful witness. Thanks for sharing Uh, that.
3: Yes.
9: Um, This is a very hard one for me to talk about, but um, I'm going to try and get through it. Um, I think the hardest, <clears throat> the hardest death for me to get through was the death of my five-year-old son. And um, it wasn't until long after he died that God showed me how many times over a period of a week before David passed away that he prepared me and, and how good he was to me during that time because several days before David died, we were watching a um, 911 on TV and David turned to me and said, Mommy, how do people die? And I said, different ways. There's all different ways that people die, David. And he said, well, how does God get you when you die? And I said, He's there. He's He's right there. When, when you're gone, you'll see Him immediately, and He takes you to heaven. And David was saved when he was four years old. He came to me. He rode the church bus to church, and I was I was in my backslidden stage. <laughs> which is a different story. But uh, God used him to bring me back to church because he was always telling me how happy he was when he asked Jesus into his heart. And so the day that we were talking about death, he said, Mommy, what would you do if I died? And I said, David, I don't want to talk about that. That's not going to happen. And Mommy would be brokenhearted. And I would cry. I'll never forget it because he, he turned and he, was, he got on my lap and he put his hands on my face and he said, we were very inquisitive. If I would be with Jesus, why would you cry? And um, that, wasn't, that wasn't my five-year-old. That was God <laughs> talking through him and preparing me because three days later, he was hit by a school bus on his sixth birthday and uh, there's so many things that occurred during that week that God reminded me of and made me look back on and uh, showed me that his hand no matter how wrong it felt, God's hand was in it and it was what he was destined to, to do, to be in our home for six years to the day and get mommy back in church.
1: Thank you, Kara. Thank you. Um, you brought up an interesting point there. Uh, there's a difference between, I mean, there is grief. We are going to feel grief, and. This was brought home to me, very in a in a very good way by my middle daughter Diane, who is a, a, a very committed Christian. And um, I, I said a really stupid thing to her, to my children. I said, "I don't want you to spend a lot of time crying and, and having a fit when I die." And and Diane said, "Mom, Mom, that's enough." She said, I have a right to my grief. You are my mother. And boy, she set me down. She's good at that, by the way. And so I realized that, yes, of course, we have a right to our grief. There's nothing wrong with grieving. We're going to grieve. We know that Jesus wept. We know that we, we grieve, and we hopefully grieve at appropriate times. And certainly losing someone very close to you is a very appropriate time to grieve. So there is a difference between uh, uh in, in just uh dreading death and, and grieving. So we are getting some great points here. Any, it, it, David, we need the mic here. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I had a
10: very interesting experience. I had an anterior discectomy done and paralyzed my vocal cord. And I was having a terrible time. I could hardly walk across the room. I didn't have enough breath. Without a vocal cord to keep the air in your lungs, you're you're always out of breath. You can't cough. It's horrible. It's a horrible way to live. I couldn't Uh, talk. I, I couldn't talk. I had had... Um, two surgeries at that point to correct that, and not, nothing was helping. In the middle of that, our daughter was married and moved to Colorado, to Denver. Well, Pat's company had a, a fun business trip to Vail, Colorado, and they agreed to meet us up there. And uh, one of our activities was whitewater rafting. And I said, come on, guys, this is something we've got to do. We'll never have this opportunity again. Let's go whitewater rafting. So they put us in our wetsuits, and, you know, a lot of people that knew us were around us. Sally and Tim were all good swimmers. We had a very young guy who was our raft captain. They were giving us all of our instructions. And Sally, I still didn't have a voice, and he's telling us, if something happens, the first thing you do is scream. And, you know, th- this is the position you take to protect yourself. There are rocks in the river. You want to be sure you don't hit, you know, hit a rock. And Sally goes to him. I mean, she was in a panic at this point, And she's very specific with him. My mother cannot scream. My mother can't make a noise. You are responsible to watch my mother. And on top of that, they put her in the front of this raft with Tim because she was very light. They put Pat and me in the back, and as I remember, Pat was on one side, I was on the other. Well, we had gone through most of the trip, and all of a sudden we hit a rock, and because we're in the back, one of his employees and I went boom out of the boat, out of the raft. And the first thing I'm aware of is my daughter screaming, screaming at the top of her lungs. She was so panicked. And I I remembered what the guide had said. You know, you need to come feet first down the river. You don't want to come head first because (laughs) that rock. And I got caught in an undertow. And I was closer to this side of the shore than I was that side. And that's the way we were going. And then they were all going around a turn besides. And through all this, my daughter is screaming, my mom, my mom, get my mom, get my mom. And so I turned myself so that I'm looking at them, and I put this smile on my face. I'm fine, I'm fine. I can't tell her I'm fine. But just hearing the panic in her voice, I'm just... Heart just clutched. I just thought I felt for her. I knew I could get myself to the shore and be all right. How in the world they'd ever pick me up? I had no clue, but I knew I could be on dry land if I could just get out of this undertow and move that direction. But that was the scariest thing I've ever experienced is my daughter's panic.
1: I can well imagine. Yeah, I've uh, David and Lisa, and I've done the Colorado. Rafting trip, and I didn't remember a single instruction. I don't, I, you know, and I'm sure, I, I never do. It goes in one ear and out the other, and, and I'm sure that in a moment, if the raft had turned, or what, I wouldn't have any idea of what to do, um, because that's the way I am. You just, just forgetting it. But of course, people are panicked that love you when they think that, especially if they told you to scream, and you can't. Yeah. What a, you picked a fine time, Lucille, to go to that. Yeah. <laughs> On a raft trip. Lisa, uh, my daughter back here, she went on a raft trip in Alaska, and they gave him a wonderful instruction up there. Uh, wasn't that Lisa, just don't fall in because the water's so cold, you'll freeze immediately. So that, uh, you know, that was, you know. So, uh, does anybody else have a have, Okay, go
11: ahead. Alice, I just want to say I've been um, rafting one time. Um, I, you're courageous. <laughs> yeah. um, it does strike me as amazing, our culture, how taboo death is. Oh, yes. And not that it needed credence, but I, I've worked um, as a hospice volunteer for maybe three, four years. Maybe 20 patients and... Um, they well I knew, I know you always cling to life, but they they don't have that conversation mm-hmm. the The older gentleman that i 'm with now um, sat with and, and I just basically give respite so family members can go shopping or whatever. No skill involved here. I just said i'm asked not to share my faith unless um, there are questions unless they ask me what I believe, mm-hmm. um, but this particular gentleman he he just why can't I get up? Why can't I mow the yard? I can't understand what's happening to me. He's an adult failure to thrive, which is probably the most leading cause of the elderly um, to die. So his body is just weakening. His organs are gradually, also gradually failing. So it's weeks on end that he's bedridden, sleeps most of the time, but um, and it is up to family members to have that conversation and, and maybe less. He asked me specifically. A nurse comes in, so the nurse checks vitals, but it's still a taboo subject. It's like, why am I not hungry? Why have I no appetite? Mm-hmm. Why have I no energy? I, think, well, I guess I don't eat much because I sleep all the time, so my body doesn't need that nutrition. But it's never... I remember when my mother was dying, the doctor told me, this is grave. Well... What does grave mean? I know what it means, but um, I wish I I knew how grave it was so I could have spent that last 18 hours bedside when she was in the hospital. Um, It's palliative care. I believe in that, comfort care, and not, you know, zapping with radiation and all that when it's long over, you know, it's the inevitable. But I just wish we could um, open up to one another and just say, you know, when the patient says, why is my body failing that we could be more implicit in our answers just so we could be there and have that conversation? But so often the patient passes without that conversation.
1: That's right. That's right. Thank you. So what you were saying too, Tanya, is, is about you, your friends don't want to talk to you about it either because they don't know what to say. They don't know what to say. And you said their eyes, a glassy look, you know, and they, they're uncomfortable. That's right.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's right. Anyone else? I, I had something else I wanted to um, share with you. We have a couple more minutes here. need my glasses for this. This is one of the penalties of growing old. Uh, is there evidence for life after death? Atheists believe that death is a cessation of being. In their view, humans are merely bodies and brains. Though they reject metaphysical realities such as the soul a priori, they are convincing reasons to believe that humans have an immaterial aspect to their being that transcends the material and thus can continue to exist after death. Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland advances several sound arguments for the existence of the immaterial soul. First, from the perspective of logic, we can demonstrate that the mind is not identical to the brain by proving that mind and brain have different properties. As Moreland explains, the subjective texture of our conscious mental experiences, the feeling of pain, the experience of sound, the awareness of color, is different from anything that is simply physical. If the world were only made of matter, these subjective aspects of consciousness would not exist, but they do exist. So there must be more to the world than matter. An obvious example is color. A moment's reflection is enough to convince thinking people everywhere that the experience of color involves more than a mere wavelength of light. Furthermore, from a legal perspective, if human beings were merely material They could not be held accountable this year for a crime committed last year because physical identity changes over time. Every day we lose multiplied millions of microscopic particles. In fact, every seven years, virtually every part of our material anatomy changes apart from aspects of our neurological system. Therefore, from a purely material perspective, the person who previously committed a crime is presently not the same person. A criminal who attempts to use this line of reasoning as a defense would not get very far. Legally and intuitively, we recognize the sameness of soul that establishes personal identity over time. While the logical, legal, and libertarian freedom arguments are convincing in and of themselves, there is an even more powerful and persuasive argument demonstrating the reality of life beyond the grave. That argument flows from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The best minds of ancient and modern times have demonstrated beyond a shadow of doubt that Christ's physical trauma was fatal, that the empty tomb is one of the best attested facts of ancient history, that Christ's followers experienced on several occasions tangible post-resurrection appearances of Christ, and that within weeks of the resurrection, not just one, but an entire community of at least 10,000 Jews experienced such an incredible transformation that they willingly gave up sociological and theological traditions that had given them their national identity through the resurrection Christ not only demonstrated that he does not stand in a line of peers with Abraham Buddha or Confucian, Confucius but also provided compelling evidence for life after death and I'm preaching to the choir on this one because I know that you know this anyway but what comfort that is for us who are Christians um, I'm going to uh, close this in prayer but um, I thank you for this discussion. And next week, uh, we're going to talk about, we're, we're going to continue talking about very serious matters like death and dying, but also any guilt associated with, with that, because we are all consumed with guilt at times, including me. Um, and I hope you'll come ready to discuss these things. So l- let us close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come into your sanctuary and to share these very compelling and troubling aspects in our thinking and to realize that you are sovereign, that you choose the time of our dying and you choose the manner of our dying. We thank you for all these people who are willing to share We ask that you be with us throughout this week and bring us into the sanctuary again next week at this time, ready to share and to give of ourselves. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen.